Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. I'll be reading James 2, 1 to 13 this morning. I'll be reading from the ESV. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Please be seated. As you do, please take your Bible and turn to James. If you're not there already, we'll be in James chapter 2, the passage that was just read by Jeff. I do feel the liberty given our snow day last week that I have now 60 minutes to preach instead of 30. I know some of you are laughing, but some of you by the look on your face are going, is he serious? And given my tendency, you really don't know because typically I'm going 40 to 50 minutes anyway. So you're like, oh man, buckle up. We'll try to go fast. I don't have the energy of Pastor Pat, um, unfortunately, but... uh, You know, if you're setting your watch, you probably have almost a solid hour to crash. But we'll look at the context. It has been just a little bit, so I want to review for us. So hopefully you're in James by now. And it's always important that as we look at any passage of Scripture that we keep it connected to its context. You're going to hear us say this time and time again. The danger is isolating it from its context because when we do that, we can make the text say whatever we want it to say. There's danger in that. The problems with that are manifold. And so we want to make sure that we're revisiting the historical and literary context as we look at this epistle. One of the reasons why we end up breaking this down into more bite-sized chunks is because unlike the early church who would have received this letter and read it in its entirety, our culture, that's not our culture. And so we're meeting our culture where we're at, and we're breaking this down, and we're trying to unpack it, explore it a little bit more. And so to do that, we want to make sure that we are consistent with what James is saying. We also want to stay on point with his melodic line throughout the whole letter and consider the intended audience, which was in view. 
And so with that said, we'll back up just a little bit into James chapter 1, and you can see that the melody of James flows from chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. It says this, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James is writing to his displaced sheep who are facing a variety of trials on the horizontal. They're facing testing, suffering, temptation. You fill in the blank. And James encourages them, he exhorts them, to respond to these frustrating times with joy. Consider it joy. This is something from God. So in this trial, in this test, in this suffering, even though it's frustrating, even though it's inconvenient, this is something that God is not wasting, and he's allowing this. You can trust him, and our response to this, James says, should be joy and confidence in God. Say, time out. I mean, who finds joy in the trial? The trial's not the source of joy. The source of joy always is our God. Our source of confidence is always in him. And we know, because our God is sovereign, that he is working all these things that we're experiencing for our benefit so that we would know and trust him more. Even though it doesn't always feel pleasant, even though it doesn't always feel fun, even though it's not always convenient and comfortable, God's not wasting these trials in our lives. For James' audience who's displaced due to persecution or in our lives personally, the trials, the suffering, the different temptation, life that we experience on the horizontal, we can resonate with this. God's using these trials, this passage says, to produce in us a steadfastness, a perseverance that grows or matures into a completely integrated life where our actions are consistent with the gospel. That's what's going on. That's the melody of James, is that God is using these trials to produce in us a steadfastness, a perseverance, where we grow and mature into a completely integrated life where our actions are consistent with the gospel. James's audience, maybe we can resonate with this, lived fractured and inconsistent at times and needed to be called back and saying, hey, this does not mesh with the gospel. If we consider the historical context and the recipients of this letter, if we back up even one more verse in James 1.1, we're seeing that this audience of James is scattered. They're dispersed. Greetings to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Okay, so James' audience is a group of scattered Jewish Christians. And if we look at the book of Acts real quick, I'm not going to have you turn there. We could spend some time, but this is really exciting. In Acts 1.8, you remember, what did Jesus say to his followers? That you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then Judea, Samaria, all the way to the ends of the earth. And if we read through Acts, we see that that's the progression. That's the advance of the gospel. It started in Jerusalem and then it spread. And no matter what we see throughout Acts, in peacetime or persecution, the gospel went forth with power. Now, unfortunately, because you know none of us likes, enjoys the idea even of persecution, we cringe at that because we want safe, we want comfortable, we want convenient, guilty, okay? We're human, right? But even in persecution, 
That was a vehicle that God used to spread the gospel. And so what we see in Acts 8, 1 and following is that persecution is heightened. Stephen has just been martyred. And now everyone who is staunchly Jewish and in love with Torah and absolutely hating Jesus and his followers now feel this passion and now they can go get him. And that's what we see taking place. And so persecution ramps up in Acts 8, 1 and following. And where do these people flee to? If you look at Acts 8, 1 through 4, you see that these people flee from Jerusalem and they go to Judea, Samaria. Huh. Just like Jesus said that they would be witnesses. And wherever they go, the text says in Acts that they're sharing the gospel, that they're witnesses of this Jesus These persecuted people can't keep silent. And so they're sharing the gospel, and they're sharing the gospel with primarily their brothers and sisters, the Jewish people that they feel comfortable with. And so they gather in synagogue, and they're connecting with their people. And so the scattered church is sharing Christ. Well, Saul's not content just to persecute believers in Jerusalem. So what he does is he gets the proper or appropriate paperwork gets authority from the religious leaders to go and pursue, hunt down these displaced Christians. And so we see in Acts 9 that he gets papers to go to Damascus, Samaria. And he's going to grab whatever he can, whatever believers he can, and haul them back to Jerusalem and have them stand trial there. Well, we know how Acts 9 goes. Saul doesn't make it as intended. His plans go sideways. But as a result, persecution is still happening. Just because Saul becomes Paul and gets you know, sidetracked from his plan, persecution is still happening. And on account of the persecution of Stephen, we see in Acts 11 that these believers go as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Syria. And so they're, they're traveling all over the place. And so in connection with the timeline of Acts and the timing of James' letters, it appears that this dispersed, displaced audience is this group of believers who scatters due to persecution throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. That's what's taking place. That's James' audience. That's who he's writing to. These people would be very familiar with Jewish context, that's where they would continue to gather, either in their local synagogue or in house churches that looked very similar to life there. So the trials leading these believers to be displaced were meant to produce a steadfastness in them that matured into a completely integrated life where their actions were consistent with the gospel. In our text today, in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, James is going to call them out for their inconsistency. Their life is not consistent, compatible with the gospel. It's not, they're not living in a way that they they claim to believe. And so the emphasis of this passage is that the gospel is impartial. It's impartial. And it manifests itself in love to others. And so if you look at verses 1 through 7, we're going to start out by seeing the inconsistency of partiality. James is going to quickly identify the problem for his audience. When they're gathering, it runs contrary to what they see in both the law and the gospel. And the problem for them in verse 1 is partiality. He says, my brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
The problem is partiality. It's not a word that we really use. Working synonyms are bias, prejudice, favoritism. While bias, prejudice, and favoritism, that takes many forms. That can look like a number of different things. The specific way that this is manifesting itself in James and what he's identifying with his audience relates to how they treated the wealthy and the poor because they treated them differently. And they made judgment calls, and they gave preference, and they showed value and honor to one group of people against another group of people. And so in verse 1, that's what we see. This is a paradox. Prejudice in the gospel. These things don't mesh. And that's what James is calling them out. He says, you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. You possess the gospel. You've experienced saving faith. You've been transformed by this gospel. And to treat one another with prejudice... It doesn't make sense. It's completely a paradox to the faith that you're claiming. And then in verses 2 through 4, he's going to go on to illustrate this. Verses 2 through 4 would be an illustration that they would resonate with. And imagine if you're sitting in these contexts. So this displaced people, and you get this letter from James, and it's being read, and there's faces and names attached to this. And you can identify with this whole process. It's something that they would have resonated with. It's interesting, too, that these believers in Jesus, they've they've believed in in Jesus as their long-anticipated Messiah. Guess what they didn't stop being? Jewish. They would still look at the law. They would still go to synagogue. They would still participate because their, their Judaism... It was just something they were immersed in. It covered their whole culture and everything. But now they're looking at how this is totally fulfilled in Jesus. And so as you can imagine, this would have been a struggle for them in some ways. And so James is now illustrating this point. And as these people are gathering in local synagogues or their house churches are functioning very similar to what they know. It looks like, feels like a local synagogue. Well, this is something we can't really resonate with because in the local synagogue carried with it, there were seats of prominence, seats of importance. This is not something that we really wrestle with or resonate with in church. We don't jockey for the best seats. Pastor Pat keeps trying to tell us that they're up front and no one takes them up. I mean, Chuck does, but no one else. I mean, we have, you know, the... We just don't, we just come in and we sit where we feel comfortable and, you know, we have all these different options of seating, but it's just not really an issue for us. A lot of times, if anything, it's probably more towards the back. It just isn't an illustration that we resonate with. Now, we do get the idea and the concept. We go to concerts, we go to sporting events, and there's clearly better seats than others is what's taking place. And so when they gathered, they valued certain seating. And Jesus, in Matthew 23, he's calling out the religious leaders. And there's this list, and he's pronouncing these woes on the religious elite. And in that list, he says, you choose the best seats. You want these positions of honor and prestige. And now James is calling out their bias and how it played out in real time. And he says, here's what this looks like. You know, two men walk into your assembly. Sounds like a bad joke to us, but really it was an illustration that was pointed to them. Two men walk into your assembly. One is clearly wealthy and the other poor. You usher the wealthy to the best seats, the place of value, prominence, honor, esteem. And the other 
is disgraced. You direct them to the cheap seats or the nosebleeds, and you clearly communicate that one people group is valued and the other is less valuable or non-existent or you don't benefit me. So, And that's what's playing out. And James exposes their heart, and he calls their motives into question. And he says this is the opposite of faith in Christ. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, you pay attention. You make distinctions. You become judges. Look at what the verses actually say. In verses 3 and 4, he says, you pay attention to the wealthy giving preferential treatment. Verse 4, you make distinctions the gospel doesn't make. And you become judges with evil thoughts and evil motives. Your intentions are so warped, selfish, that doesn't mesh with the gospel. If we think through the gospel, we have been given everything when we don't deserve it. We're the enemies of God, and yet he condescended and came to us when we were at war with him, when we had no ability to save ourselves. And so James is calling them back to the gospel and saying, our lives should reflect the gospel. And he's saying, instead, you're only purely living human. You're paying attention so that it can benefit you. You're making distinctions, and you're becoming judges. The gospel is impartial. And James is calling out his audience and saying, you're living inconsistent with the gospel on the horizontal. We talk about language like vertical and horizontal. And in the vertical, this relationship between us and God is set because of Jesus. How it plays out on the horizontal is a consequence of that gospel. We don't always get it right. We make mistakes. We still sin. And this on the horizontal, these relationships, we have to work through this stuff in time and space. And we want the gospel to be consistent. We want our actions, our, the way we speak, the way we, we talk, the way we act, the way we treat one another, be consistent with what we believe. And it's interesting in this section, in verses 5 through 7, we have the irony of their inconsistency. So the contrast can't be more clear between how God treats the poor and how these believers were treating the poor in their fellowship. It couldn't be more plain when it comes to how they were treating the wealthy and how the wealthy were treating them. It's really interesting. But James takes a play, I think, out of Jesus' playbook, and he illustrates through the art of asking questions. And he basically says, hasn't God treated the poor differently than you've treated them? Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? But how have you treated the poor? God's the one who's given his one and only son for mankind, for people. He's not made distinctions. This has always been to the nations. That's been the view. It comes to the Jew first, in and through, and to the nations. And yet, they're making distinctions here. He actually says in verse 6, you've dishonored the poor. Hmm. Opposite how God, one, has treated them, and two, how God has treated the poor. 
We could take the time. We don't have the time because I'm really not going to speak for 60 minutes, but we could explore Matthew 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount. I would encourage you to read that. There's so many connections, not just with today's passage, but what Pastor Pat's going to be speaking with next week. And then all throughout James, it just, it's just so rich. There's so many parallels between the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James, the letter of James. But James is basically saying, wait a minute, how have the rich actually treated you? You're giving preference and you're showing honor to these people, but how have they actually treated you? A, have oppressed you. B, subpoena you. C, blaspheme the name of Jesus, the one you've been called by, or D, all of the above. That's what he's saying in this text, and, and he calls him out on this. So the people that you are actually pandering to and trying to get something from and you're showing this importance to and this value to are actually mistreating you. You're not getting the same type of action reciprocated and what you're looking for, you're not getting. In fact, they're the ones who are oppressing you. They're dragging you into court. They're blaspheming the name of Christ. They're abusing you. They're mistreating you. But the reality is, on the horizontal, the struggle is real. In chapter 1, James has already highlighted this whole process of temptation. He says we get enticed by our inner desire. We give in to those desires and sin, and then sin, fully mature, finally leads to death. Well, you've got to remember who the audience is. And as life played out on the horizontal, you can imagine the temptation to try to secure for themselves any sort of means. You can imagine that being displaced from Jerusalem and going to another place and trying to settle down, build relationships, start over again, make connections. You're going to feel the daily financial pressures. So as you gather, it's only human, only natural to try to look out for ourselves and latch on to these rich because maybe there'll be some benefit. You also have to take into consideration the, the way that their theology often worked and the prevailing mindset was that riches were attached to God's favor and blessing. And so these people are clearly have God's favor on them. We see this all throughout Scripture. We see this even to today. We think that, okay, if life's going good and we have this wealth and resources and you fill in the blank, that God's blessing and We see that predominantly in the book of Job. We see that all throughout the scriptures and and even in the teaching and preaching of our our common day. Jesus dealt with this quite a bit. You know, in Matthew 19 with the rich young man, he's like, man, I've, I've kept the law. I'm doing all this stuff. And his heart was attached to this life only. It was attached to wealth. It was attached to what he had. And this guy rejects Jesus and walks away disappointed. And and Jesus tells his followers, he says, it's really difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? They don't see their need. They're not lacking anything. They're completely self-sufficient. And they need to come to the place where they realize that they can't. And they're dependent and they have need. And the disciples are scratching their head because they're attaching wealth and means with God's favor and blessing. And, you know, of course the rich are getting into heaven because, you know, it's like God's favor's on them. And Jesus says it's really difficult for them to enter. And the disciples are going, well, then who can enter the kingdom of heaven? He says, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So that's a whole nother rabbit trail to explore. 
So as the early church, they struggled to live consistent with the gospel, James emphasizes here the paradox of the gospel and prejudice. The gospel is impartial. It's not biased. It's not prejudiced. And just before we get into this text where he's addressing this, if you back up a couple verses into James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, Pastor Pat just recently preached on this. James is stating that true religion and spirituality is this. Here's what it looks like practically. You're controlling your tongue. You're caring for one another. And you're keeping clean in the world. But being biased, being prejudiced, is not caring for your neighbor on the horizontal. Not only is this paradoxical to the gospel, but it also contradicts the heart of the law. And as we move into chapter uh, 2, verses 8 through 11, we see this, the gravity of partiality. So now James says, it doesn't mesh with the gospel, but it also doesn't mesh with the law and what you've seen and know very well. We've already noted that these Jewish believers wouldn't stop being Jewish. They'd still be immersed in their Jewish culture. They would still know uh, the text very well. Now they're learning to see their scriptures through the lens of Jesus fulfilling that. Jesus steps on the scene and says, I've not come to abolish the law, Matthew 5, but to fulfill it. And it wouldn't be until Paul that they start seeing all the riches and all the implications and all the consequences of the gospel. And even then, even till today, we struggle with the ongoing tension and wrestling and debate at how this plays out in real time in the church. But in verses 8 through 11, he highlights something that they'd know very well. And he invites them to take a hard look at the law. He's already described the law in 125 as the perfect law and the law of liberty. And now in this section, in verse 8, he calls their attention to the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. But backing up to verse 17, Leviticus reads this. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It's built in the character and nature of God. He says, love your brother and sister. An intent of the law was to help them navigate life on the horizontal. One of the reasons for the law was, you know, they would primarily see the nature and character of God. They would get to know him and trust him. But then a a close second was that they would learn to love their neighbor, learn to love one another. James' writing here has been heavily influenced by the teaching of Jesus. So much of what he writes hyperlinks back to Sermon on the Mount. I wish we had time to click on all those links. We don't, and so I'd encourage you to read the Sermon on the Mount, in the Gospels and see how these things connect. And because we don't have time to do that, I just want to highlight one of those passages in Matthew chapter 5. If you want to turn to Matthew 5, verse 43 through 48, this is where Jesus is specifically talking about loving your neighbor. He says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. 
for he makes the son, his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rains on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus says, you've heard it said this, but I say unto you. It's not just love your brothers and sisters, letter of the law, but now the spirit of the law is invoked. He says, love your enemies. Man, that's tough. He says, he finishes this section with, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Ultimately, in Matthew 5, he says, you guys need a righteousness that far exceeds that of the religious elite. And, and now he says, you must be perfect. And he, it leaves people scratching their head going, how can we do this? We need a righteousness that is totally otherworldly. And we find that righteousness in Jesus. For the Jew, the law was an indivisible whole. James reiterates Jesus' sentiments regarding perfection in the law. Look back at at James in verses 8 through 11. He says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbors yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become accountable for all of it. And so if you're biased, you violated the law. You can keep the law in all these other areas, James says to his audience. But if you're biased, if you're prejudiced, guess what? You're a lawbreaker, you're a transgressor. And so even though you're perfect in every respect of the law, once you violate it, you're guilty and accountable for it. And so we need to be looking to... We filter all of this stuff through the gospel, and ultimately we need to be looking to a performance that's not our own. But because of him, and we'll get there, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but because of that, we have the ability now to live this stuff out. Really, the gravity of partiality reinforces the impossibility of law-keeping. We can't fulfill this thing. We can't be perfect. We look at our life and we try to measure it, and James is just showing that how absurd that is. But the law continues to point us to the reality that you can't. It's no different in James. But because Jesus has fulfilled the law and imputed to us his righteousness, the gospel now gives us the capacity to live impartial, unbiased, and without prejudice. If you look at James chapter 2, As we wrap up in verses 12 through 13, here's what it says. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to those who have shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So James is now wrapping up this text, and he's calling them to the practical outworking, the practical application uh, that agrees with both the gospel and the law. Because Jesus has fulfilled the law. James reminds them that their bias has turned them into what? Judges. Their bias has turned them into judges, but wait, there's only one judge. And as we are prejudiced and biased and treating others with contempt based on various things, we've made ourselves into judges. And so he says, you need to speak 
and act, so how you live your life, not as judges, but as those who will be judged under the law of liberty. Now, the law of liberty, all throughout the Old Testament law, and now we get to this idea of gospel, always reveals the nature of God. The law tells us we can't. The gospel tells us we need a Savior because we can't. And ultimately that Jesus did. We can't follow the law perfectly. The law called them to love God and love others. We see that all throughout the gospels as well. But now in Jesus, we actually have the ability, the freedom to live this out. We can love one another without condition, without condemnation, and without judgment. James says here, on the horizontal, there's always a sowing and reaping. If you don't do this, don't be surprised when you're treated with bias and prejudice because you've been doing that to others. He ends with this, that mercy triumphs over judgment. That word triumph means it's more powerful than. Mercy is more powerful than judgment. It's easy for us. We all have an opinion. We all make judgments all the time based on any number of things. It's easy for us to look at people and make a quick judgment, make an observation. That's what's taking place in this text. And then they're following through with more things based on that. But mercy flows from the nature and character of God. We see that on display. We studied through Exodus. And by the time we got to Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7, it reveals to us the name and nature of God. And we'll look at that in just a second. But we've already considered what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. The parallel passage to that is Luke 6. You can turn there if you want. You don't have to. I won't be there long. But Luke's parallel passage when Jesus says, love your enemies, and this goes right into not judging one another, immediately following it. But Luke's passage ends with this. We'll go up to verse 35. But love your enemies and do good. And lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you'll be sons of the Most High. For he, for God, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So James is ending with these things, clearly echoing what Jesus is saying, is that love your neighbor, even love your enemy, but be merciful. Mercy Love triumphs over judgment. They lived constantly in need of God's mercy. And because of what they received, they should be giving out. So this gospel produces gospel fruit. But sometimes we live inconsistent with that. But they expected this covenant God, they expected from him love mercy, grace. Because in Exodus 34, which I mentioned, and we spent some time studying there, we find the name, the nature, the character of God. In verses 5 through 7, it says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, stood with Moses, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This mercy 
flows from the heart of who God is. They experienced it. It's in their scriptures. And now they should be extending that. For them to extend prejudice and judgment rather than love and mercy was completely counter to what they've experienced and received from God and ultimately what we receive through Jesus. Mercy is more powerful than judgment. Love is more powerful than judgment. And James is calling them back to live consistent with what they've received. James is calling his audience back to live in time and space on the horizontal, the fruit of the gospel. So as we wrap this up, we're reminded that the gospel is impartial. God demonstrated to all humanity his love by sending his one and only son to live the sinless life that we could never live, to die the death that we rightly deserved, and he rose victorious over sin and death to give us life. In this, he condescended, and his mercy and grace is on full display. And as his followers, that should be flowing from us to one another. And because the gospel is impartial, we now have the ability to live loving one another, to live unbiased, to live without prejudice. Love and mercy are a fruit of the gospel. They're a consequence. And so for us to live impartial is consistent with our identity in Christ. So in James, the gospel is impartial. And it manifests itself in love to one another. Let's pray. Father, it is a sobering thing as we look at the gospel, as we look at what we've received, and we look at our life and how we treat one another, and it's often fractured and inconsistent. And yet, because of Jesus, you've given us the capacity, the ability, and you are doing this in us and through us. We don't always see it in the way that we want to see it. And oftentimes, these trials and tests and suffering manifest this in us. And yet, you're calling us back to the gospel. What have we received from you? Mercy and grace. How can we now treat one another with mercy, which triumphs over, is more powerful than our bias, our prejudice, our judgment? So continue to strengthen us by your grace and your mercy to be merciful to one another, to freely give as we freely received. In Christ's name, amen.